Ask any Latter-day Saint what the meaning of the baptism of Jesus is, and they will say two things. One, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to show an example of keeping the commandments, even when you don't need to. Two, Jesus went under the water and came out as a symbol of his death and resurrection. But there's so much more going on here than that. In fact, for those with an ear to hear, the baptism of Jesus and the events that follow are a retelling of the entire Hebrew scriptures and the history of the people of Israel. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me in Gospel Doctrine. This lesson is Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, the story of the baptism of Jesus. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, lesson number five in your New Testament. Uh, come follow me manual. And uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. I know there are more of you every week. And uh, let me just say, if you would like to contact the show, uh, please email me at gt at or get in touch with me on the Gospel Doctrine page on Facebook. Uh, and I love engaging with my listeners. So many of you send messages of encouragement and of appreciation. And uh, receiving those messages, it, you don't know how much it means to me, how much it keeps me motivated to continue. Um, I am now to the point where we, ha- we have more people downloading and presumably listening to the podcast than... I could possibly fit into any room in any church that I've ever taught in. And so uh, my goal when I started this, this podcast was to reach as many people as I used to reach when I was a gospel doctrine teacher. And I was in a, in a singles ward that had a lot of people visit. And so it was, a, it was a lofty goal, but now we've exceeded it so, so many times over. And um, it, it feels, I, I feel wonderfully blessed every week to be able to discuss these topics with you, and I feel a, uh, quite, a, quite a duty to prepare and to, um, to make sure I'm bringing you everything I can. So please don't hesitate to send your questions, and I'd love to discuss them during the program. So let's talk about the baptism of Jesus. First of all, if you read these chapters, we're going to bring in a little bit also of John chapter 1, which we discussed last week, because John also relates the story of the baptism of Jesus and the first thing that all of the that all of the evangelists mention about John the Baptist is that he is a fulfillment of two scriptures one is Malachi 3 chapter 3 verse 1 which is I'll send my, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare prepare the way before me and the lord uh, and this is, this is interesting because this is the part they leave off. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Now that, that prophecy should remind you of something specific in church history, which is uh, Jesus Christ appearing to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple. And so it's interesting because the, the fulfillment of this prophecy has, has multiple or I should say this prophecy has multiple fulfillments, um, but the way that the evangelists all saw John the Baptist was this messenger of Malachi chapter 3. Now, remember the word messenger. I don't know if you were listening back in the Old Testament lesson when we discussed 
uh, Isaiah chapter 40, the phrase good tidings is actually uh, tied in with the messenger, with he who, him who brings good tidings. And that was all one word. And so this messenger is very closely related to the word angel and it's related to the word gospel. And uh, the, the messenger that comes before Christ and Christ himself are both called the messenger. They're both the gospel. So here's John the Baptist. He's the messenger preparing the way of the Lord. And then the other uh, prophecy that the evangelists consider John as fulfilling is Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And this is also translated, make his path straight. Or um, in, the, in the New Testament, it's rendered, yeah, make, his, make a path for our God. And so... Um, I, I spent a little time just thinking about what could that mean? What does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord and make straight a path or prepare a pathway for God? Uh, there's a little clue. For, and then he goes on to discuss, we'll, we'll discuss this first and we'll come back to what it means to make a pathway. There's a, there's a little clue about what this means in verse 4 of Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight, the rough places plain. And everyone will see the glory of the Lord when in Israel is returned to its land, when, when God comes to reign. That's the good news that the messenger brings. And the, I've mentioned before, and we'll mention several times during this year, that a, a very prominent New Testament theme is this idea that the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And it has so many meanings. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun when you see one of them to to point it out to yourself and to recognize what you're seeing is Jesus describing the first, or someone, the, the scriptures describing the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So every valley shall be exalted could be interpreted to mean the those who exalt themselves, as Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In, in fact, Jesus specifically ties this to the last shall be first and the first shall be last in the chapters that immediately follow these. And that, so that's definitely one meaning uh, of every valley shall be exalted. But it also is this idea that God is going to have an easy road to travel. And when he, when he comes in glory, he's going to have an easy road to travel. And then immediately John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He says three times in the next, at least three times, uh, depending on which account you read, in the next several verses, Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, which just is a, a way of translating uh, that we should bring forth works that are consistent with repentance. In other words, he, and he says this to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they show up wanting to, wanting to be baptized as well. They see everybody else coming out and being baptized for the, as John the Baptist describes, the remission of sins. And John calls them a generation of vipers, which is, a, you know, a tribe of snakes. And he says, how can you think that you're going to be, just because you're calling yourselves descendants of Abraham, that, that doesn't really mean anything. These stones, God can rise from these, raise from these stones descendants of Abraham. You have to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Now, those that are humble say, okay, okay, John, what do you mean? You know, the, the, in, in one of the accounts, we have those who are, uh, wanting to repent, the publicans, for example, those who have those Jews who have agreed to collaborate with the Romans in collecting taxes, and they're hated. They're a hated group of people, 
And they say, John, what does that mean for us? How do we repent? And he says, make sure that you don't collect more taxes than you're due. Because these, these Jewish publicans, they have the weight of the Roman army behind them. So they, if they're crooked, they can uh, enrich themselves. And the centurions, the Roman soldiers themselves, are asking, what do, we, what do we do? What does fruit meet for repentance? What does that mean to us? So each person, each group of people who are humble, they ask, what does that mean for me to bring forth fruit meet for repentance? Except the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the ones who go unto the baptism of John without, without bringing fruit, fruit meat for repentance. And then uh, John says specifically, he says explicitly, in verse 11 of Matthew 3, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. In other words, this baptism doesn't do you any good if you don't come into it with a changed mind. But if you do, we'll, we'll discuss what it means if you do. So how do all these things, what, what does all this have to do with making God's path straight? And this is just a small point we're going to hit and then get into um, the, what the symbolism, a lot of the symbolism of the baptism of Jesus for the rest of the lesson. To make God's path straight is to make it easier for someone to travel a road. When you straighten a valley, uh, when, you, when you raise a valley or, or level a mountain, and, and our modern technology can do this when we're building a road, it's so that the road is easy and can be traveled swiftly. And so that somebody beginning the road is going to know for a fact that they'll be able to get to the end. That's what you do when you make someone's path straight. You build a road so that they can travel that road often. So if we're making God's path straight and John is saying, bring forth fruit, meet for repentance, what he's saying is give God a path into your heart so that he can come, so that he knows that he'll make it all the way to his destination when he begins his journey to your heart and that he'll travel that road often. So bring forth fruit, meet for repentance. These are all the same message. And uh, it's interesting to go back to Isaiah and read it that way. This Isaiah chapter 40 is the prophecy where the word gospel comes from. When, and, the, and the culmination of that prophecy is when this voice crying in the wilderness says unto Jerusalem, Behold your God. That's the good news of the gospel. So to have at the same time that, that scripture tied into the baptism of Jesus and John the Baptist saying, Make the path straight of God. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Give him an easy way to get to your heart is, is directly tied in with the idea that, that God will come to reign. He has to reign in our hearts before he can reign on the earth. Uh, a very significant message there. So um, the normal, then, then uh, let's, dis- let's discuss the events of the baptism of Jesus. So... Um, First John describes that there's somebody coming after him. Everyone says, wow, this guy is so knowledgeable, and he speaks so differently from anyone else. He must be the Messiah. So they ask him that. Are you the Messiah? Are you this Davidic king that is going to arise and, and do a lot of the things that you're a lot of, fulfill a lot of the prophecies that you're obviously fulfilling? And John says, no, I am here telling you about a man who will come that even though he comes after me, he, I, I'm not even will. I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoes. And in in Middle Eastern culture, the shoes. Remember, the shoes are the most unworthy part. They're the filthiest part. If you've ever been to the Middle East, for example, and you cross your legs and you show somebody the sole of your foot, it's considered very rude. It's a it's a dire insult. 
just just having them look at the sole of your foot is awful. There's a story in the news about um, the Nike Air Max, and they have a logo which is the R combined with the M, and if you turn that upside down, part of it spells the word Allah, and so there's this controversy. Did Nike Nike want their shoes to be to have the word Allah and then tread on it? It's a huge uh, protest in the in the Islamic world now because the bottom of the foot is considered to be unclean, and they want they want Nike to recall all these shoes. Well, uh, so and John is saying I'm not worthy to touch the feet. I'm not worthy to undo the sandals of the the, the real Messiah, but he's coming after me, and. Um, the word, it's, it's maybe worth noting that the word worship originally came from a Greek word, which means to kiss the ground that someone else had trod on. That's how far you're willing to humble yourself. That's how far below you are, the other person, the object of worship. And so this, this is the treatment that kings respect, or ex- expected, which is, I walk on ground, and that ground is changed, is made holy, and other people should be willing to kiss even the ground, even the dirtiest part of me, they should be willing to venerate. There is one man, and, and as Americans especially, those I know there are people listening from all over the world, but in American culture, we have a strong reaction to the idea of a king's being above the normal people. We believe all people are the same. That's, that's a widespread belief around the world nowadays. Uh, we don't believe because somebody is noble or royal that they are better than someone else. They're an object of worship. But there is one man who's ever lived on the earth that is really does deserve this kind of treatment really does deserve our worship and that's what John is saying I'm not I'm not will I'm not worthy to to undo his sandal Jesus is a fitting object of our worship even if that worship means abasing ourselves and placing him on a high pedestal above us and we'll discuss why that's the whole point of this lesson today that so um Jesus comes to John to be baptized and John says you don't need to be baptized why I, I need to be baptized of you. And Jesus says, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, mo- so most, any, any primary child will tell you, that's because Jesus was trying to show an example of keeping a commandment, and it was a commandment to be baptized, and so he did it. Well, that is one small part of what's going on here. Yes, Jesus is trying to show an example. So that, ask any LDS, any, any Latter-day Saint, why uh, Jesus was baptized, this is what they'll tell you, because he was trying to show a, uh, he, was tr- he was trying to show God that he was, would be obedient in all things. True, but let's examine the events that occurred. So, um, it, it, it describes Jesus coming out of the water in other words, uh, it's very clear from all of the passages that Jesus was all the way down in the water when he was baptized. So first of all, he's baptized by immersion. Then the heavens are opened, and the Spirit of God descends. In one, in one account, in Luke, it describes the Spirit des- descends in bodily form, like a dove. In, in other places, the descending as a dove or the sign of a dove. This has been discussed um, but in any case, the Spirit of God descends and is, and is um, coming down on Jesus over the water. Then there's a voice from heaven. God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then, remember we talked about in the first chapter of John last week's lesson, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness, fast for 40 days. Angels minister unto him. Um, 
so this is, and the, and the wilderness that he's driven into is the wilderness of present-day Jordan, the country of Jordan. So uh, let's, let's discuss how Jesus' baptism is not just about obedience. So first of all, remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there. All kinds of observant Jews are there. The, the Jews live in a time when they have been exiled multiple times. They've been mistreated for centuries. And the ones who have chosen to return to Israel to stay in this, in this land are those who are absolutely dedicated to the law of Moses, to a fault, to the point where they will stone somebody for blasphemy. And they, you know, they accuse Jesus of these crimes many times, breaking the law of Moses for breaking the Sabbath. They're very serious about their, their religion and their scriptures. It's everything to them. Many people have the entire five books of Moses, not just rabbis, but for sure rabbis. They have the t- entire five books of Moses committed absolutely to memory. They could recite any part of it from memory, which seems insane to us today. But there are still people who do this. But it wasn't uncommon uh, in, in Jesus' day. But for sure, all of them had read it and heard it many times, many times over. They knew the scriptures very well. So what Jesus was doing was also a lesson, an object lesson for a prepared audience. And let's, let's discuss what that object lesson is. The first page of the Bible, of the Hebrew or Christian Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God is moving on the face of the waters. And God, then, the, then we hear the voice of, of God from heaven. God said, let there be light. Now, when God says something, and this is going back to John chapter 1, that is God's word. And this is a common idea at the time of Jesus that God has one aspect, which is the, this inscrutable being who lives in heaven, who's infinite and not understandable. And then there's God's word, which is the visible aspect of him, which deals with humans. Here's God speaking. And there's his word in existence. Um, we can hear it. We can understand it. The word of God is the part of God that we can get, that we can see. And Jesus says this word was made flesh, so it became a man. But even if it wasn't a man, it's, it's the part of God that we hear accounts of in the scriptures. That's the word of God, and Jews would have understood this. So at, in the creation God was present, God the Father who's, who's parting the heavens, the Word of God is present, and the Spirit is abiding over the face of the waters. And then God, there's a wind that blows over, the, over these waters, and then God creates man, and he breathes into them the breath of life. So wind was considered the breath of God, and the Hebrew word, this Hebrew word ruach, which means wind, and it also means spirit, it means the breath and the spirit. He breathes into man the breath of life. So once the man is breathing this dirt that is, that is there, then uh, that dirt becomes human beings. It, it, we are brought out of chaos into life. So the baptism of Jesus is immediately recalling all of these images from the creation of the world and from the creation of man. And remember, Adam or Adam just means man. So Adam represents, in, in the creation story, Adam represents mankind. Jesus is reenacting the creation when he's baptized. But it goes a lot further than that. Obviously, think about all the times in the, in the Old Testament when you, when you read a story that has to do with large amounts of water and people going under it. 
The next very crucial example that comes up is the story of Noah. In Genesis chapter 7, the entire earth is flooded. The high hills are covered. All the earth is, is covered. The fountains of the great deep are broken up and the windows of heaven are opened up and all this, the, there's so much water that everything is covered and only people who are inside a watertight boat can survive. So, so Noah has taken the entire earth with him and he has fled the destruction of man from its great wickedness. And at the end of this time, when, the, when God is ready to part the waters and Noah can walk out from the water onto dry ground, he sends forth a dove three times. And when this dove doesn't return anymore, that's when Noah knows it's safe. And then when he comes out of the ark, God says to him, I will never, and Noah prays to God, and then God says, I will never again do what I just did. I will have mercy, even though man is wicked. And here's a crucial element that's now added to this this ongoing story of the, the way that the children of God interact with water. Even though man is wicked, I'm never going to do this again. I'm now going to look down on the world and I'm not going to expect more from man that, that they will be wicked. I'm not going to destroy them again for it, but I'm going to work with them. This is the way the, the, the Jews at the time of Jesus, they understood the scripture, which was God is trying to get man to be righteous. And with, uh, with the creation of Adam, he's failed. With the, with the t- people at the time of Noah, he's failed. So with all of mankind, he's failed. And he has to just be merciful towards man. So what is the next thing that God tries to, what is the next tactic that God uses to try to get man to receive the blessings that he has? And he keeps, he keeps talking to these prophets over the course of the Old Testament and saying, I have so many blessings for you. Uh, and I just need you to be a covenant partner with me. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And, and as part of that covenant, I'm going to pour down blessings from heaven, all the blessings of the plan of salvation. I just need a faithful covenant partner who can receive them. And the next group he tries that with, it, he reduces the group from all of mankind to the, the people of Abraham, which later becomes the nation of Israel. So this is the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And in the wilderness of Sinai, God says to them, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be a light unto the Gentiles. You'll, you'll be an example of what it's like when somebody, when a people obeys the commandments of God, and then everyone will see that, and they'll all come unto me. So this is God's next plan. He's going to use Israel, the nation of Israel, to accomplish his work on the earth. And as a symbol of that, uh, remember now, we're, now we're into the Exodus story. Remember that Moses was commanded to go to Pharaoh and say, uh, tell, tell Pharaoh in, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go into the wilderness. And if you don't, I'll take your firstborn son. So right there, God is claiming his firstborn son and asking that that son go into the wilderness. This is unmistakable parallelism with the, with the uh, baptism of Jesus. How do they go out? The, the Israelites are eventually allowed to go into the wilderness and they're on the banks of the Red Sea they're on the banks of this large body of water, and God, the, the, the enemy is pursuing. Israel is coming out of slavery, and the enemy is pursuing, and this cloud, the Spirit of God, separates Israel from its enemies, from, from that which has enslaved them. And then a great wind goes out from heaven, goes out from God, 
and piles up the waters on one hand and the other, piles up this chaos. Waters represent chaos and death. And especially the farther down you go, well, the higher up you go, you go into the mountains. These mountains are in Old Testament times are, are where you get closest to God. And the depths of the sea is where you drown and die and you're farthest from God. And so, and, and it's also turbulent, it's unpredictable, it's chaos. And so this chaos is driven back and dry land is created and the people of Israel walk through. And the Spirit of God then rejoins them and, and accompanies them in the wilderness so, so many, right there, right there in the Exodus story, so many obvious parallels to the, to the events of the baptism of Jesus, that it is obvious that Jesus, so the question, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip this question around that we started with, which is, why was Jesus baptized? And uh, the, ba- the word baptism comes from a Greek word meaning to immerse, to dip something in water. So a lot of people answer this question on the surface and they say, well, Jesus was baptized because it was a commandment to be baptized. Here's a deeper form of the same question. Why was Jesus baptized? Meaning, God needs a covenant where we join his people, where we agree that we're going to keep all of his commandments, where we're going to be faithful to him. Why did God choose baptism as that covenant? God could have chosen, and, and, and this is really worth thinking about. I'm, I'm, I want you to take this question seriously. God could have chosen any ritual act. We, you know, when you spill salt, for example, there's a common uh, superstition, then you throw it over your shoulder, or you knock on wood when you say something you don't want to come true, right? We have a lot of little rituals that we undergo, and God could have chosen any little ritual for us to enact in order for us to symbolize our acceptance of all of his covenants. And the act that God chose was this, this act of immersing ourselves in water, of baptism. So why was Jesus baptized? We get a little hint of it right here, that Jesus is tying himself. Well, the, and this is, this is the backward-looking way of, of seeing it. Jesus is tying himself to the entire history of Israel. Uh, the, but as you, um, obviously the entire gospel, the entire history of the world, the entire plan of salvation is centered around Christ. So we look at it backwards. We see Jesus is tying himself to the history of Israel. He's showing that there are parallels between him and the nation of Israel. But really what is happening is the entire history of God dealing with his people, he's setting up symbols for Christ who will come. So when he creates the world and then he inspires prophets to write about that creation, he uses imagery that will evoke that will evoke understanding of Christ when Christ comes. When he floods the earth, it's an image that will remind us of Jesus when Jesus comes and is baptized. And the same thing is true with the Exodus. Exodus. So think of all of these, uh, think of all of these events, like the law of Moses, like the sacrifice of the lambs of the temple. They're all forward things. They're all uh, presaging. They're all events presaging the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is the entire point of the Hebrew scriptures, that they would point us towards Christ that will come. Now, there are some instances where these precious things were lost, but all of it could not be taken out because it is so deeply buried in this text, that in the, the, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. It is so deeply buried there and ingrained there in every page that it can never be taken out completely. 
And here are two, there are three examples we've just discussed. Man has been created, man has been shown mercy, and now man is brought out of slavery. The slavery, uh, in, in the case of the baptism of Christ, the slavery of sin, we're brought out of slavery through death and then driven by the Spirit into a wilderness where we'll be alone. And Jesus Christ himself, driven, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness where he'll be alone and he'll rely entirely on God for his sustenance, just like Israel did. So this is also a way of Jesus to show that he is the fulfillment of the promise of the people of Israel. They, went, they, they had all these events occur to them or happen to them as well. They, uh, they were driven into the wilderness, then they had to pass through the River Jordan, and that's the next event we'll discuss. And then they lived in Jerusalem, and then they were driven into exile and death. Jesus' life mirrored the history of the people of Israel. And we talked about that two, two weeks ago. But I'm bringing it up again because all of these things come to a culmination at the baptism of Jesus. They're, they're especially highlighted in these chapters. And they would, have been, they would have been apparent to the people reading these Gospels. This, this, were the perp- this was the purpose that these evangelists organized this information the way that they did. Uh, it's consciously done. They're showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in so many different ways, in every way possible. So the next event that occurs in, with relation to water in the Old Testament is the, the, pe- the children of Israel have been wandering for 40 years, and then they come back across Jordan, and, and God wants to show them that Joshua has as much of his approval as Moses did. And so they have a similar event. And they're carrying, by this time, they've created the Ark of the Covenant, which has these two cherubim extending their wings towards each other. And above that is, is a place that, uh, uh, an imaginary place, described as the mercy seat where God will reside. God, God's dwelling place, uh, which is, and when God dwells somewhere, his tabernacle, his, the overlapping of heaven and earth is right above that Ark. So that's where God is, if he could be said to be anywhere. He is dwelling above the Ark of the Covenant. And the priests, these high priests, the holiest of all the priests, are charged to carry this Ark and cross the River Jordan. And the day before this is going to happen, Joshua says to all of the, the entire nation of Israel, sanctify yourselves, meaning you're gonna, you need to be ritually pure. And uh, ritual purity often involved washing yourself. In the time of Jesus, there are what are called mikvaot. These mik- these uh, it's a mikvah is a an, a subterranean, uh, almost like a bathtub. It's enough. It's a carved cistern of stone with enough space for a person to descend into and immerse themselves in water. Many times in the law of Moses, it says, "Wash yourself and you'll be clean." Show yourself to the priest, and then at evening time, you'll be clean, ritually clean. And this this idea of washing. Uh, uh, it evolved over time until at the time of Jesus, it was thought to uh, involve immersion by necessity. And so archaeologists have found hundreds of these little baths, these little cisterns in the city of Jerusalem and all over the, the land of Israel. And so Joshua is saying, wash yourselves, sanctify yourselves. Tomorrow the Lord will work wonders among you. He's saying, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Joshua is saying exactly what John the Baptist said. Before we go through the water, we're going to prepare ourselves spiritually to receive the blessings that God has for us. And then God, 
in the form of the Ark of the Covenant, marches down into the water. And if you remember the story, the second that the boots, the soles of the shoes of these high priests hit the water, an east wind blow, or I can't remember if it's an east wind, but a wind blows, a powerful wind from God, and piles up the water on one side, and then the waters flow away on the other side, and these priests walk through on dry ground and stand in the middle of the River Jordan. And it's almost like the spiritual power of these priests holding the Ark of the Covenant, holding the mercy seat, sitting there in the middle of the water. That's what's holding back this wall of water. And the entire nation walks through, and then a a representative of each tribe comes back and picks up a a large stone as a commemoration, and they build an altar on one side. And when they're done with all of this, then the the high priests continue their march. And as soon as the, the sole of the foot of the last priest leaves the waterbed, then the river flows again, and it's overflowing at this time of year. So it's its highest point. And it's been held back for all of these hours that it took them to cross and to build this altar. And then the waters, these, the, the, the symbol of chaos, the symbol of death, the, the waters that have been parted that Israel has passed through in, in, a, in a form of baptism, now rush down again. So once again, Jesus is fulfilling an image from the Old Testament, and he is performing an act that is going to bring all of these scriptural and uh, folkloric and cultural passages, these stories, to, to the mind of those who witness it and those who read about it. So he's teaching an important lesson when he's baptized. Um, there's, so here's the, here's the people of Israel. They've, they've gone everywhere from being created through being uh, freed from slavery to being shown mercy, and then now they're in their promised land. Right? This, is their entire, this is the entire story of the people of Israel. Well, almost the entire story. Obviously, there's, then there's their, their, the fact that this covenant that God makes with the, the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant that God makes with the people of Israel, they can't fulfill. God has not yet found this faithful covenant partner. And this is when we get the story of Jonah. And Jonah is... A fascinating, fascinating story. There's so much about Jonah that uh, I wish I could go into. But first of all, Jonah wants to die at the point where he goes into the water. He has chosen to end his life. Everyone around him is suffering because Jonah has resisted the will of God. And he says, oh, you know, it's me. It's my fault that all this is happening. I'm just going to go into the water and die. And then all of you will be better off. And Instead of dying, Jonah survives. He doesn't get to choose that he dies. Uh, A fish swallows him, and he's carried to the bottom of the sea. And in in that way, his he thinks it can't things can't get any worse for him. But in that way, things get even worse. And he hits what you might look at as rock bottom. He is literally at the rock bottom of the ocean, the farthest place you can get from God, the symbol of death. He's as, he's, as, uh, he's as deep into it as you can get. And looking as I have at the, this month's um, Enzyme, the, this month's church magazine has a cover on it that has to do with addiction, how we're absent from our lives. And the, when I was looking through the story of Jonah, I saw so much in it that is reminiscent of addiction. And addiction affects everyone. Addiction is not just uh, a... a an irresistible urge to drink alcohol. An, an addiction can be, an addiction is us numbing ourselves 
from any of the pains of life. It's saying, I don't believe that God can reach me in this place that I'm at. And so I'm going to choose some other act that is going to cover up the pain that I feel by being separated from God. Right? Remember, God in the Book of Mormon describes two deaths. We have this physical death, and then we have a spiritual death where we're separated from God by our sins. And one is the first death. The physical death is actually the first death. And then the spiritual death comes forever and never leaves us and takes us away from God forever. So here's Jonah symbolizing both of those. And so often when you hear the story of an addict, you hear the story of hitting rock bottom which, if you think about it, doesn't really exist. Rock bottom is the point at which an addict decides this pain of the spiritual death, this separation from God that I feel, it it hurts me so much, and I've been soothing it with my addiction, I've been soothing it with my actions. Or all of us could say, uh, we've been soothing it by this belief that we are not good enough, that we, uh, all of these beliefs that we decide to, to take on, instead of bringing forth fruit, meat for repentance, then the these are what are supposed to soothe us. And eventually that that soothing feeling feels worse and worse and worse until in the case of addicts, they get to the point where this this pain of being separated from God and and, uh, of continuing their terrible acts and bringing shame on themselves is greater than the pain of bringing forth fruit meat for repentance. Now it's, it's a lot of pain to face the sins that we have. And that, that pain, it, it's, a lot of times it's not until that pain gets so great of being separated from God that we're willing to face the pain of repentance instead. And Jonah reaches that place. He's in the belly of a fish and he realizes, and I'm, and I'm, not, and I'm not saying if you try to kill yourself, you won't succeed, right? This, this is a, a symbolic suicide only. Jonah decides to die, meaning he decides that spiritual death is his lot in life. He's never going to repent. He is going to, he's going to go to his grave rather than, uh, he's going to go to his grave and go to hell. And he even says in, in Jonah chapter two, I called from the depths of hell. I, I, from the belly of hell, in fact, is what he says. And you heard me. And so the, the story of Jonah is a retelling of what happens in each of our lives when we decide that we want to repent and make our way back into God's presence. And it has even more powerful meaning for those who find themselves in, in addiction, whether that addiction be uh, alcohol or drugs or, or gambling or pornography or even something like uh, something simple like video games. There's so many forms addiction can take, and addiction can be uh, bullying, right? Addiction is anything that causes you to act in a way you know you, don't, you shouldn't act, but you're covering up your own feelings of pain from being separated from God. And you think, rather than repenting, you think, if I do more of the same, then I feel a little bit of numbness. And then I can withstand this pain a little longer. And eventually that just doesn't cut it anymore. And Jonah realizes, I've tried to flee God's presence for so long. Now, why don't I try doing what God has asked of me instead? And so he calls out to God and this, this beautiful chapter of poetry in Jonah chapter 2, where he calls out to God and says, I'm in the depths of hell right now. I've gone as far down as I can go. The pain of, of running away from your will is now greater than the pain of turning to you and actually doing this distasteful thing I didn't want to do, which is go to Nineveh, these people I hate, and preach to them. But I'm now willing to obey your will rather than my own. And then he, and then he sees like Alma the Younger saw when he was in his 
his death like experience, his baptism, spiritual baptism, he sees the mercy of God and he sees that God is willing to hear him. Uh, in, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, at the end of this time, uh, well, let's start a little earlier. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And, and remembrance uh, uh, it has a huge tie-in with repentance. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities, in other words, these, these addictions, these sins, anything that separates us from God, they that observe lying vanities uh, forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. This final sentence, salvation is of Yahweh. Uh, or put another way, Yahweh saves. If you've been paying attention, you'll recognize that as the name of Jesus. That is the meaning of Jesus, is Yahweh saves. Here's Jonah telling us, I will pay that that I have vowed, Jesus. And if you don't think this went two ways, then you haven't uh, understood Jesus' own testimony that he is, that, that Jonah was a symbol of him. In Matthew chapter 16, a wicked, uh, verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. This is after the Pharisees and Sadducees, these same Pharisees and Sadducees who were baptized by John. They come to him and they ask a sign if he's, if he's who he says he is. And he says, no sign will be given but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Then he doesn't explain it. And we've all taken this to mean that Jesus would be three days in the tomb the way Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. But this also has a meaning that Jonah was carried down into this chaos, into this death, and then came out of it. He, he looked to God. He, he stopped choosing to be uh, enslaved. And then he comes out of it. The sign of the prophet Jonah is not just the sign of the death of Jesus, but it is also a parallel to the baptism of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't tell us that it's not. Now, there are New Testament testimonies that the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus are the same thing. The most, the most prevalent, if you've ever been on a mission, you've used this scripture a lot, uh, is Romans chapter 6. So in verses 1 through 8, Paul talks about how when we are baptized, in, as he puts it, in the, in, or as it's rendered in uh, the King James Version, when the, as many of you who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Meaning we, uh, we are free from sin the way that, we're free for, that Jesus was free from death when he arose from the tomb. We're planted with him in, in the likeness of his death. And then we're brought forth in the likeness of his resurrection. And uh, this is very clearly uh, a teaching that baptism frees us from sin the way that Israelites were freed from slavery. We're no longer, and, and, he, and he uses the word freed all, all throughout this chapter verses 7 and verse 18 specifically, we're free from sin. In other words, we're no longer slaves to what we had once we passed through the water. And uh, so, so Paul had an understanding, and he says it more explicitly in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He uses the word baptized when he's talking about the Israelites passing through the uh, the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, this doesn't end with Paul. Peter, in the in 1 Peter, talks about the flood. And 
in First uh, Peter chapter three, verses twenty and twenty-one, you you might remember that he says, you know, the the mercy of God waited on man when when eight souls were saved from the flood, and then he calls this a, a likeness of baptism. And I encourage you to read that actually in another translation on Bible Hub. Here's a here's one example of the New International Version. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So all of these things I'm saying, they're not just me making this up. This is, this, these were known and taught by Jesus' disciples. All of these images of water in the Old Testament, they called forth very clearly to the people of Jesus' time and to Jesus' direct uh, associates. They called forth all these images, and they were well-known and well-discussed centuries ago. So that's most of the symbolism of water, but there's more going on here. Why did God show up? Why did God the Father show up at this specific point in Christ's ministry and at no other time? Why did God the Father say publicly, here I am, everybody look, I am God the Father. I approve of, this is my, this is my son, not just my messenger, but this is my son. This is my beloved son. Um, we'll talk about why this would have been the point at which God chose to do this. But first of all, beloved son, the words beloved son, there's one other person in, this, in the Hebrew scriptures described as a beloved son, and that is Isaac. So this progenitor of all the Israelites, he is also a beloved son. And uh, when Isaac is called upon to be a sacrifice, then a, a lamb is put in his place and dies in his stead. And when John saw Jesus and was John the Baptist, and was going to baptize him, what are the words that he uses? Behold, the Lamb of God. So here is Jesus being called the Lamb, and then going into the water and being called a beloved son. Here is another image that Christ will die for us as, as this Lamb died for Israel. Uh, then, in whom I am well pleased... Right? This is a, the, this um, idea that God is pleased with someone is an echo of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, this suffering servant who will die for Israel. And uh, so let's, it, I encourage you, if you have your scriptures in front of you, to look up Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and chapter 53, verse 10. Specifically in, in 53, 10, this suffering servant is cut off from the land of the living verse, in verse 8. And then he makes a grave with the rich and the wicked. So it's clear that this suffering servant is going to die. And then in verse 10, God is pleased. The pleasure of God smiles on him from heaven. And so the, the suffering servant is going to die for his people and then incur by that act the pleasure of God. And God is now saying, this is my beloved son, the Lamb of God in whom I'm well pleased. There, Jesus Christ is saying, so, so what, what did Paul say? When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. And Jesus Christ, by all of these acts, is saying, not only you were baptized into my death, but when I was baptized, I was also baptized into my death. And God is witnessing 
that Jesus has three years before the Garden of Gethsemane. When, uh, when Jesus is there suffering, we think, okay, finally it's occurring to him all of this stuff that he's going to have to undergo. That may be true, but Jesus knows when the prophecies of Isaiah are referring to him. Early on in his ministry, he goes into a, a synagogue in Nazareth and he says, I am here to preach the acceptable year of the, war, of the Lord, to, to preach liberty to captives. And, and this is from Isaiah. And then he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus knows when the prophecies of Isaiah are applying to him right at the beginning of his ministry. And so here he is fulfilling one of the prophecies, the suffering servant. And he knows what's going to happen to him. And he was baptized into his own death. And he was saying in that moment, Thy will, not mine, be done. I'm willing to take on this ministry and everything that it entails, and I know what's coming right from the start. And that's why God shows up and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Every, every phrase of that utterance has an incredible significance, both to the ancient Israelites who witnessed it and to us. It shows us who Jesus is. It shows us that he's willing to pass through this water of death and suffering to separate us from sin and from the choices that we make, and show mercy on us. So, since the beginning of the, uh, of the, first of all, God has, so, so Jesus has passed through the waters of death for and in behalf of Israel, as the proxy sacrifice for them. And um, when w- Jesus goes through his, his baptism, his wilderness experience, the, through the Jordan, through his death, and which is, symbol of the exile of Israel. He is Israel, but Israel as it should have been. And God has been seeking this this covenant partner with whom he can arrange to bless mankind, first the all of humankind and then the nation of Israel. And then he makes the Davidic covenant, which is just maybe the royal line. Uh, David, I will never let your line falter. And there will be one, your son that comes after you will be so great and your kingdom will never fail. And then they fail in that way. And each time God tries a, a covenant with mankind, it fails. He can't get anyone to deserve these blessings that he's ready to rain down from heaven. So here is God, this covenant partner, one half of a covenant above the earth, looking down and saying, I want to bless all of you. And then in the form of Jesus, a man, comes some one person, God has narrowed, now narrowed down from all of mankind to only one person who can now fulfill the earthly side of this covenant and say, yes, we accept these blessings of the plan of salvation, God. And, and Jesus, on behalf of all mankind, was born into earthly life. And then when he's baptized, he accepts all of it. He accepts his birthright. He accepts his identity. And he accepts the entire history of Israel. And he says, God, I am the faithful covenant partner from below. I am, on behalf of mankind, willing to earn the blessings that you have promised. And I, and I take the entire history of the Old Testament, and I accept it as myself, as my birthright, and I, and I earn these blessings on behalf of mankind, and now I'm willing to share them with everyone. That's what baptism is. So when we're baptized, and, and this is important to remember, Paul says when we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. But the truth is we're also baptized into his baptism. When we accept the covenant of baptism, when we make this covenant of baptism, we take upon us, we, we join this, this grand history of thousands of years 
of the people of Israel, of, the, of God's people of all ages being created from chaos, of being shown mercy in the days of our sin, in being freed from slavery, in being led into the promised land, and, being, and, and having a recovery from those choices that we would make that separate us from God. We are baptized into all of those things, and we're, we're adopted in this way into the, this is how we're adopted into the people of Israel, into the family of Abraham. In fact, we're, we're invited, we're welcomed into this community of people who have been traveling this journey for all these centuries, and we, we become part of the history that, uh, of the people who have received all these examples of God's love throughout the ages. And Christ, the eternal high priest, is standing there in the middle of the water, holding it back and waiting for us to cross over. While dry shod, we enter the promised land, never more to go out. This is what it means to be baptized. This is what the baptism of Jesus Christ meant. Uh, One final scripture we'll discuss, and that's Isaiah chapter 11. This is after the the, the nation of Israel has been exiled. This is symbolized by the death of Jesus, right? The, as Jesus' life parallels the life of the nation of Israel, his death symbol is a symbol, is a fulfillment of the symbol of their exile. So those two things are parallel. And at the beginning of chapter 11 of Isaiah, Israel, this mighty tree, has been cut down. And yet there's a branch that grows out of it. And this, this word branch comes to represent the Messiah, for many of the Old Testament prophets. And this branch grows out of the stem of Jesse. In other words, it's, it's an offshoot of the Davidic covenant. And it, it becomes this great, this great rod which will, which will smite the earth and have the spirit with it, etc. And so uh, th- at the end of Isaiah chapter 11, so that's the beginning of Isaiah chapter 11. And at the end of this chapter, this is, this is one of the chapters in which the, an ancient prophet describes Israel returning to the land of its inheritance in the last days. And what are the images that Isaiah uses to describe that day? Uh, in the last days, God will gather Israel. In verse 15, the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So the return of Israel to the promised land in the last days is going to be similar to the Exodus in the sense that they pass over water the, the Lord rebukes the waters, parts them, creates a path for Israelites to return. And if you remember all of the imagery from what that, what that return is going to look like and how blessed the people will be and how abundant life will be in that land afterwards, you'll understand that this is a spiritual as well as a temporal blessing. It's not just returning to a land, but it's returning to a life that is blessed forever and, and right in God's presence. So that's the final image that Christ is fulfilling from the Old Testament. He's fulfilling the creation. He's fulfilling the the showing of mercy after the flood. He's fulfilling the freedom from slavery. He's fulfilling entry into the promised land. He's fulfilling the feeling that we have when we're separated from God and we need repentance and we hit, hit rock bottom. 
And it's a promise. Baptism is a promise of the beautiful day when we will enter again into his presence, never to leave and to be blessed with him forever. One final scripture I'll share with you. Before Paul discusses that we're baptized into Jesus Christ's death in Romans 6, at the end of Romans chapter 5, he says, he's describing the, the, the fact that the, the fall of man has separated us from the love of God. And he says in uh, Romans 5.19, Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And this is what Christ did when he was baptized. This is why the Father could not help, could not remain silent, could not help but show up and say, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus is when Jesus took upon himself his identity as the Messiah for all of Israel and as our personal Savior. And when we are baptized, we're baptized not only into his death, but we're baptized into everything that his baptism represented. And that's a covenant we have the opportunity to renew every week. I pray that we will do it and we'll remember everything that it means and everything that God has done for us and all the blessings he has not only promised us, but earned on our behalf. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.